the Sportsnet today across the Sportsnet radio network. Show Ali with you for the next two hours. I am here in our downtown Toronto studio in what is a relatively chilly day. I hope you're all adjusting to the seasons continuing. Got my winter tires put on this week. Maybe a little too early, but hey, at least that's done. <laughs> on today's show, we'll get into a few things. We'll chat some Leafs after a loss last night. Justin Cuthbert from Yahoo Sports will be along in a few minutes to chat the Buds. Katie Heindel will join us in the next hour to discuss the Raptors. And Scotty Barnes looking just phenomenal against the Celtics last night. In what was, in case you didn't know, the worst blowout in a Celtics home opener in the history of their storied franchise, which is just stunningly hilarious. So all things Raptors next hour. We'll also continue the NFL and Bills conversation throughout the show. Week 7 in the NFL is here. Bills, of course, on their bye week. Later tonight, we will have the uh, call of Mavericks Raptors. That'll be down at Scotiabank Arena. Pre-game starts at 7. Tip-off goes at 7.30. That'll be right here on the fan and across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Eric Smith and Paul Jones will have the call. As always, William Liu will have Raptors reaction on the air immediately following this one. Of course, uh, Leafs Nation postgame will be on the air later tonight after the Leafs game with Brent Gunning and Gord Stellick. So a busy night in sports. And of course, don't forget, Sportsnet is the home of baseball. And you can, uh, of course, watch the Braves try and finish off the Dodgers in uh, in game game six, let's say, I believe it is. Game six of the NLCS. That goes later tonight at uh, 8 p.m., I believe. 8.08 p.m. Eastern. But it is a special day today. I want to get to this right off the top. It is an anniversary of a very special moment in Toronto sports history. And all I'll say before we play this clip for you is that this happened in downtown Toronto on October 23rd, 1993. And I believe since then, 28 years later, it has become ingrained in the very fabric of this city. And I am sure you have heard this clip before. Joe has had his moments. Trying to lay off that ball low to the outside part of the plate, and he just went after one. Two balls and two strikes on him. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a belt. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are World Series champions. As Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning, and the Blue Jays have repeated as World Series champions. Touch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. Still gives me chills to hear it. Of course, the uh, great Tom Cheeks call of Joe Carter's winning home run off Mitch Williams to beat the Phillies 8-6 to in Game 6 of the World Series again on October 23rd, 1993. Uh, Carter himself was actually on the fan this week. You can find it on the podcast for Fan Drive Time with um, ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. But I want to ask you guys this question, okay? And this is something we've explored before. But I want to know, in, in honor of the famous Joe Carter home run, probably the most famous home run in Blue Jays history, and I know people of a different vintage might say maybe it's the maybe it's the Batista walk-off, but I mean, you know, pardon me, the Batista bat flip, but how can you get better, much bigger than a Joe Carter walk-off to win the World Series? I want to say it's only happened twice, to a World Series winning walk-off. I want to say it's only happened twice in the most recent time, being Joe Carter's walk-off that we just heard with Tom Cheek. But so I want to, in honor of that, what I want to know from you all, and you can text us at 590-590, what is your favorite walk-off hit, home run, 
Bases loaded walk, maybe buzzer beater, OT goal, whatever you want. Game ending play, your favorite game ending play that you either watched on TV or were there for in person. I mean, there must be hundreds of them, right? So you can text me again, 590-590, name and location. We'll read them on the air over the next couple of hours. We'll play a couple for you uh, before we make way for... Uh, 32 Thoughts, which will follow us at 5 p.m. Um, I have a few we can discuss myself, but this one, I wasn't present in person for this one, but I was working on the radio broadcast this particular day. This was back in July 2017, um, and Jerry Howarth was still calling games for the fan. Jerry always was really fun to work with. I was producing this game. I believe Ryan Clark was our technical director, and Ryan and I were sitting around watching the Blue Jays just get hammered, right? Like, they were getting crushed by the visiting Los Angeles Angels. It was 10-4 to 4 going into the bottom of the ninth inning. Albert Pujols, who we'll actually see later tonight with the Dodgers, amazingly, he had four RBI. Yunel Escobar had an RBI double. Ben Revere had an RBI single for the Angels. It was grim, okay? I was looking forward that day to just getting to Jays talk and getting out because it looked ugly. I did not anticipate the calls. Um, and in the bottom of the ninth inning, okay, again, 10-4 Angels going to the bottom of the ninth inning. We got a Kevin Pillar home run, a Russ Martin RBI single, a Kendris Morales walk, and then Steve Pierce came to the plate with the sacks packed for the second time in less than a week. The 2-0 pitch. Fly ball deep left field. Has he done it again? Back goes Revere to the wall. There goes another walk-off grand slam. Oh, my goodness. Blue Jays, a seven-run ninth inning to edge the Angels 11-10. to 10, And Steve Pierce has done it again. That's the great Jerry Howarth's call of Steve Pierce's walk-off grand slam. The second walk-off grand slam in less than a week. Look, I'm not comparing what Steve Pierce did in 2017, which was basically a lost season for the Blue Jays, to what Joe Carter did in Game 6 of the World Series. I'm not comparing that. But I'm just, I just remember... It vividly, because the calls on JSOC that day that I screened were crazy. People changed their tunes so fast, and I don't blame them whatsoever. It was an exciting way to end the game. But, man, that was a really fun way to finish a shift at work, let's say. So it was just kind of cool to be, at least in, a, in like the smallest of ways, be involved with that. So there you go. That was uh, That's one that immediately sticks out. Um, I'm sure there, there are many more we can talk about, some from... Uh, the Raptors run in 2019, certainly, and the Leafs and and the Blue Jays, other ones in the Blue Jays history. I'm sure we have plenty of them. So you can text me at 590-590. What is your favorite walk-off hit, home run, OT goal, buzzer beater, whatever you want. We'll talk about it over the next couple of hours. But very pleased right now to be joined by Justin Cuthbert, Leafs beat writer, Yahoo Sports Canada. And uh, Justin, before we talk about last night's Leafs game, do you have any uh, favorite uh, walk-offs, buzzer beaters, OT goals that come to mind? Ooh, putting me on the spot. Uh, I mean, I always have, uh, you know, the one, the you know, the ones that clinch a Stanley Cup, you know, stand out for me. I don't think Alec Martinez's goal was uh, all that memorable for the LA Kings a few years back, but that one just when you win the cup on a goal like that, and I guess Patrick Kane had the same, and he, uh, you know, he was the only one in the building who knew it was in that in the net. So I think that's something you sort of dream about is that scenario where it could you could win a Stanley cup on an overtime goal. And uh, there maybe haven't been too many of them recently, but uh, I guess those are a few that stand out. You know, what's funny about the Alec Martinez one. Cause certainly every, everyone recalls the Patrick Kane winning goal. When the puck kind of snuck under that like pad in the, in the net and he, he screams over to the bench. And then after replay, they all realize that was a really good one for the, uh, I believe it was over the Phillies 
But for the for Martinez, I remember he got it was a two on one, and right after he scored that goal, Lundqvist. Oh man, I felt I, it was it was exciting to watch a uh, Stanley Cup winning overtime goal, no doubt. But at the same time, the camera immediately panned to Lundqvist, just flat on his face on the ice, and he looked up and he looked devastated like at the same while Stanley Cup winning goals are super exciting I can't imagine the the sheer anguish of defeat that goes into the other side of those things yeah I mean I guess it's the complete opposite flip of the coin there but uh yeah the exasperation right I mean that's that sort of makes the scene especially when it's it's great when it's done in the barn of the of the home team and when it, when they win but the silence when you can hear the scream oh. And everybody else is sort of silent. Uh, that sort of makes uh, for the best spectacle, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm chatting with Justin Cuthbert, Leaf Speed writer, Yahoo Sports Canada. Okay, Justin, let's talk a little bit about the Toronto Maple Leafs and last night's 5 3 loss to the visiting Sharks. And look, it's not time to panic just quite yet when it comes to the Leafs' top line, I would say, right? But I will say this it feels like the most consistent player for Toronto so far this young season might be William Nylander. Is that fair to say at all? Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I think he's been sort of the one consistent, um, you know, top-end performer. I think there have been some good uh, performances um, from other players deeper in the lineup. Uh, Michael Bunting's one that stands out. But, you know, when we talk about this team, we talk about those main guys driving. And I think we've seen, uh, you know, we've been left to be desired from uh, Tavares and Marner so far. Uh, and Austin Matthews is just making his way back. But when you look at the, the guys who need to be good for this team to win, uh, consistently, uh, it's a short list, and William Nylander stands out certainly, and and that dates back to last year's postseason. Uh, I mean, I think I made a remark on Twitter that you know at least William Nylander has been a standout in what nine, ten, eleven straight games because he was that way in the playoffs, and he has been that way to start this season. Absolutely, yeah, William Nylander, like you said, basically picking off where he left off. Uh, picking up where he left off, pardon me, against the Montreal Canadiens from last season. Um, you know what, Justin, I want to ask you, uh, kind of on the flip side, what do you think is going on with Mitch Marner? It it, it definitely feels like he is a, an easy target because of the contract and because of the comments he made following the loss of the Habs last year in the playoffs. But I just wonder, like, it, I, I don't think he's injured by any means, and maybe the points will eventually come because he's obviously very, very talented. But I just wonder what do you think is going on with the play of Mitch Marner as of late? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot going on. I think it's sort of the suggestion that this team would just get over this mental hurdle immediately and just be okay in the regular season and, and perform as they have because, you know, they haven't had problems in the regular season was maybe a little bit naive and short-sighted because I think the mental thing is the number one story in this season for them. I mean, dealing with all that they, you know, the demons, as Paul McClain would call, call them uh, on the All or Nothing series, that's real. And, and he was dead on when he said that. And I think that those demons are just going to infiltrate more and more into the regular season because, you know, all this, it, it's, it's not enough anymore, right? Where it's all this talk is from the postseason has now entered this regular season. And I think it's going to live throughout. And I think Mitch Marner is sort of the poster child in terms of dealing with that. And I, I don't know if the mental issue has been sort of addressed the way it needs to for this team to get over it. So I think that's one thing, but I also think they just have an underperforming winger on that line and Austin Matthews is just getting back and they haven't been able to really find that chemistry yet because of, you know, everything that's going on around him. It's been really ugly at even strength, especially against the San Jose Sharks. Like he was joining the club trill with a lot of zeros uh, on his stat line last night. Um, but the power play stuff is an issue too, and he's playing a new position now. So a lot is going on in Mitch Marner's world, it seems, and this is a guy who can perform when 
you know, nothing's weighing on him, it seems. But when there are things to sort of consider, I, I think it affects his play. Chatting with Justin Cuthbert, Leafs beat writer for Yahoo Sports Canada. You know, you mentioned the power play. Why do you think Jason Spezza's role, and maybe even in a larger sense, the entire second power play unit looks so much more dangerous than PP1 right now? Yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure. I think there's probably a couple, you know, just some inconsistencies in how they've been able to get to this point. Obviously, Austin Matthews practicing, but not being up there on the ice to start and Mitch Marner learning a new role. So I think there's a couple things there. But then that goes back to the last question, is that Jason Spezza is consistent. Nothing seems to phase him. He, we do see a different side of him sometimes when it's a really important game. But this guy is as reliable as it gets when it comes to his you know, performance from game to game, whether it's the regular season and the postseason. So I think you just know what you're going to get. He has that know-how in the power play situations. And I think they just keep things simple. They just... Get the puck on that. Jason Spezza takes those opportunities because he's taken them a hundred times and he feels comfortable doing so while the other group is just trying to figure things out, it seems. You know, I want to ask you a little bit, Justin, about uh, some of the newer uh, Toronto Maple Leafs that have joined the squad this season, right? I mean, we, we have been uh, treated to Nick Ritchie, Michael Bunting, Andre Kasha, uh, to specifically those three guys, I suppose. And when it comes to Michael Bunting, I mean, there, there has to be nobody else on this entire team, maybe Wayne Simmons, but nobody else uh, truly on this entire team who must finish each game just covered in bruises. Like, that guy goes and just digs the puck out from the corners of the arena, it feels like, on virtually every time he's on the ice, which I know is basically why he's here, and that's kind of what they're asking him to do all the time. But, boy, I I've, I got to say I have enjoyed, and I know a lot of people have enjoyed, watching Michael Bunting play because of the the kind of, you know, I, I, used, I know this is an overused word, but the gritty nature of how he plays. Yeah, I mean, I think he's almost Zach Hyman before he came, became Zach Hyman, and I think that's, you know, not, not a slight against him at all because he's not quite that player. I know a lot of Leaf fans are, you know, you know hoping that Michael Bunting is – better or just the same as Zach Hyman, then they can boast about how they avoided having to pay uh, so much to a player that, uh, you know, maybe at his peak now, and it might bite the Oilers uh, down the, down the road, although he's performed unbelievably well to start uh, the Oilers season. They're five and zero, and he's got, I think at least five goals, it seems. Um, But with bunting, it just seems like he can grow into something. And if you start with what you're good at, you can sort of add on a little bit more and a little bit more. And what he's best at is just being in, just getting his face into everything. And you mentioned the bruises. That's, that's the main thing. It's just getting involved as much as possible. And when you do that routinely over and over and over again, good things tend to happen. And we've seen some moments for him that have been very, very good. And and I think there's a lot of room to grow into that Zach Hyman role, which again, started very basic and he became more and more important as the years went on. It's a good point, actually, because I remember when Zach Hyman first started to, I guess, you know, quote unquote, burst onto the scene. One of the things we talked a lot about with Hyman was that, you know, he'd, he'd sometimes get a, a, an amazing pass right in his skates or right on the stick. And then he'd fumble it as he as he closed it on the net or on the goaltender. And and he became so much better at that over the years. And and I mean, it's unfortunate that he ended up moving on because I think a lot of Leafs fans would have liked to have seen him remain in a Leafs uniform. But I mean, I, I don't blame him for getting what he got for, from Edmonton. That's a, an amazing deal for him. Like you said, maybe not be amazing for Edmonton in however many years, but it, it's true. Michael Bunting definitely, I just think that is something people have to keep in mind when it comes to Bunting, and I would say probably has to keep in mind, too, with a lot of these young guys. I mean, this this entire roster, and we can even tie this back into Austin Matthews, Justin, is that Austin Matthews is still, for example, incredibly young, 
And I feel like things like that, the idea that players can still grow maybe is forgotten and probably because of the contract situation and, you know, the idea that they have to win a cup during this this uh, time period, this uh, this window, let's say, that they're all under contract, him, Marner, Nylander, and Tavares all at the same time. I, I totally get that. But I also feel like sometimes we have the converse, we, we forget to have the conversation maybe that a lot of these guys are still incredibly young, specifically Matthews and Marner and some of these other guys as well. Yeah, and I, I would group Nylander in that group who's, yeah. you know, into his seventh season now, and we thought $6.9 million were signed, and it was signed, you know, right at the deadline at the 11th hour. And was that an overpayment? Was that a huge mistake? Did, did that situation, you know, was, you know, snowballing effect or the, the beginning of the snowballing effect for this team? But as we look back at it now, it looks like a value contract. It, it looks like if he was signing a contract now, it would be a lot more than $6.9 million. And he's so he has grown into it. The problem is that the other two guys on the team that signed contracts in around that, Matthews and Marner, as you mentioned, I mean, they've already reached that value. And it's going to be really hard to exceed it. I think Matthews obviously has a chance. He's going to be in the hunt for Rocket Richards, I think, for the next couple of years for sure. But it's going to be difficult for Marner to do that. And it you know, circles back to that sort of first question. First thing we were talking about is, all that pressure being on him, and it, it's it's related to the contract, no doubt. There is room to grow into that, um, but there's also other factors that are sort of coming into play here. And and I think everything will get sorted here. Obviously, Matthew's coming back. Uh, it's going to take a, a little bit. He admitted that as much, and it's going to take a while for those two to gain ke- chemistry back together and to have Nick Ritchie or whomever fill in on that line and make things all work. Um, but you know, hopefully, you, sh- you kick off the rust now. Uh, and you get it into overdrive, uh, you know, in the, in the middle of the season and, and start peaking when it really matters most. You know, since we're talking about Austin Matthews, I just I know this is a bit of a tangent from like any any recent Leaf stuff, but I'm just curious, Justin, do, do you remember a time where you could at least have the conversation that a player on the Leafs was one of the best players in the NHL? Look, I, I know when we talk about the, the best players in the NHL today, it's, you know, Connor McDavid is probably ahead above anyone else. It's, it's not, I don't think it's a super huge gap, but Connor McDavid's probably number one. We can have the conversation if Nathan McKinnon is ahead of Austin Matthews, for example. But at the very least, I feel like Matthews, talent-wise, um, is probably, you know, top five, top three in the league. I honestly, even going back to the days of, like, Matt Sundin, I, I feel like, I mean, was Matt Sundin ever really, he was a very, very good player, and I, and I loved watching him play. It was a privilege, but I feel like you'd have to go back even further than that to find a time period where one of the top three best players in the NHL was a Toronto Maple Leaf. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think Doug Gilmore maybe had a couple seasons there where he would have been considered that, but it, it, the moments are fleeting, right? And, and the moments for you and I probably, uh, we don't remember them as much. We do remember Matt Sundin, of course, but he was, you know, a Maple Leaf superstar, not necessarily an NHL superstar that's going to be, you know, in the conversation for the Hart Trophy every year. I, I don't know if McDavid's going to share in that over the next three, four, five seasons, uh, but certainly Austin Matthews has sort of cemented his claim as the best goal scorer on the planet, although I will say he's already in chase mode here because Connor McDavid has gotten off to such a great start. Uh, he's already spotted him like six or seven goals, it seems like. Uh, and it's going to be, maybe that's going to factor into Matthews as he tries to get up to speed here because uh, I think that's something he wants to own. I think he wants to be the NHL's goal scoring king. Uh, you miss three games and then you're a little bit slow out of the gate because of a wrist injury. All of a sudden you're, you're, you're in chase mode and not many people, as we know, are going to catch Connor McDavid.
Yeah, that guy, there, there, there was some obscene clip, Justin, that I saw the other day where it was something like, Connor McDavid went the length of the ice, didn't touch the puck until he was maybe a foot from the net and just casually redirects it. At, like, it felt like 100 miles an hour. He, he is just phenomenal. But I, I do think still that the, uh, as good as Connor McDavid is and as good as guys like Nathan McKinnon are as well, I, do, I don't think the, the gap is huge when it comes to guys like McDavid and Matthews. But uh, chatting with Justin Cuthbert here, Leaf Speed Rider from Yahoo Sports Canada. Um, I guess before I let you go, any expectations for any line changes or anything like that ahead of tonight's game against the Penguins? No, I mean, I think all eyes are on Nick Ritchie, obviously, with the uh, line of questioning last night and Sheldon Keith, you know, choosing one of one of two options, whether whether he was going to sort of slam uh, Nick Ritchie for his performance or he was going to stand by his guy. And he stood by his guy, so that means I, I would expect him to be back on that top line and for them, them to continue working things out. Um, but other than that, I, I mean, I think this it's just something to watch, right? If it's If it's another slow start, if things aren't getting going on that, Maybe the trigger finger to Engvall or whomever is quicker. Uh, it seems like they can't they can't get Ely Mikheyev back soon enough. Although I'm not necessarily convinced that he's ever going to be a real benefit uh, on the top six for the Leafs. But I think it's it's right to just stick true to what uh, what the plan was because there's a lots there's lots of time here to work things out. And again, Matthews just three third game into a season tonight. Uh, it's it's it feels more important than it should be because there's going to be a lot of noise if they lose this game especially with that lineup over there in Pittsburgh. Um, but it's really not a life or death situation yet. So let's figure out if, if Nicky, Nick Ritchie can play on that line. And the only way to do that is have him play on that line. I'm chatting with Justin Cuthbert, Leafs beat writer for Yahoo Sports Canada. Justin, we will monitor the line situation tonight and uh, enjoy the game against the Penguins. And I'll talk to you again soon, my friend. Cheers, guys. Enjoy it. There he goes. Justin Cuthbert from Yahoo Sports Canada. Again, the Leafs will take on the Penguins later this evening that'll be on sportsnet tv and uh, of course after this program we will make way for 32 thoughts jeff merrick and elliot friedman you can hear that uh, on the air of course you can grab it wherever you grab your podcasts but um my question to you all today has been what is your favorite walk-off i almost said what we we're going to play next which is why i paused i almost said it out loud then i thought you know what let's not do that <laughs> what what is your favorite walk-off your favorite uh, walk-off hit, walk-off home run, walk-off bases-loaded walk, you know, whatever you want, overtime goal, overtime buzzer beater, anything you want, your favorite game-ending play. And uh, I asked you this earlier when we played the Joe Carter hit, and, of course, um, someone texted in to simply say, touch them all, Joe, you'll never hit a bigger home run. Yeah, of course. Like, I mean, today, like I mentioned before, today is the 28th anniversary of Joe Carter winning the World Series and I believe, again, he is just the second person ever with a World Series winning walk-off home run. Um, you know, there, there have been other walk-off home runs in the World Series, but not to win the World Series, I believe, right? Like different, you know, game one of the World Series or game three of the World Series or what have you. But to actually end it with a championship, that is uh, certainly a big one. But uh, I appreciate that one. Uh, I see one here from Jax simply saying the miracle in Miami. And uh, that actually was a, a really exciting one from, I want to say it was the final season for Tom Brady in a Patriots uniform. And they had gone down to Miami, the new England Patriots. And we all know the Patriots uh, historically struggle, let's say down in Miami. Uh, and, uh, 
I believe Rob Gronkowski was out there on this play instead of someone like Devin McCourty, and it was the hook and ladder play. And anyways, I, I, I want to say it was Kenny and Drake who ended up taking the touchdown to the house before he got traded uh, to the Cardinals. And uh, yeah, that was that probably was the most exciting individual play of that entire NFL season. That was a really good one, even though it uh, upset me personally from from a betting perspective. But uh, I mean, what can you do, right? It's sometimes sometimes the football gods smile upon you, and sometimes they do not. Um, and I see this one from Lee in Toronto, and Lee just says, "Come on, guys, Kawhi the shot." So you know what, Lee, this one's for you, buddy. Kawhi up top looks at the clock, turns the corner for the win. Hanging in the air. The ball suspended in air. In some 18 years later, the Raptors get the shot to go. I I, uh, remember I was not working that night. I vividly remember that I was not working because up until that point of the NBA playoffs, I had worked a decent amount of the Raptors games that were, whether they were on TV on Sportsnet or whether they were right here on the fan, um, I had worked every loss of the Raptors playoffs up until that point. And I think they had lost game six by like a huge margin against the Sixers. Um, And I think that game was in Philadelphia. And I remember looking to my boss and I said, hey, can I just not work game seven? Can I? I'll work any game you want. I'll work literally any other game you want. I do not want to work game seven. So I ended up switching um, after that. I ended up working, funnily enough, the first two games of the series against the Bucks, And they lost to those two games too. So uh, that's uh, pretty funny how that works out. But again, the Kawhi Leonard shot ingrained honestly just as much as the joe carter home run is frankly because it was the first ever championship for the raptors it, it i believe even now even though the raptors have have lost Kawhi leonard and kyle lowry is off to new uh off to a new uh horizons let's say in miami he's taking his talents to south beach i i still believe that the the culture that has been set in toronto before the championship certainly with guys like demar Derozan that same year and going forward with fred van vliet and pascal siakam i truly believe that changed how people view the city of Toronto, right? It's certainly within within the NBA world and being a destination for free agents and so on, right? But uh, I, I I vividly remember where I was watching that, and I'm sure everyone does too. So again, we're asking you what your favorite walk-offs, buzzer beaters, OT goals, anything you want. We will play a couple more for you before we get off the air at 5 p.m. But you're listening to Sportsnet today. Coming up next... We will shift our focus to the NFL. Week 7 is underway after the Browns beat the Broncos back on Thursday Night Football. Jim Coventry will join me from SiriusXM and RotoWire. We'll chat with him about the ongoing MVP race and if Deshaun Watson may or may not be traded to maybe Miami. We will check in with Jim on all things NFL next. I'm Show Ali. You're listening to Sportsnet Today across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Put your love in today across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Show Ali with you. Yeah, I'm begging my, my fantasy team to be better this week. <laughs> Not great. Not great. Our technical director, Josh Santos, beat me a couple weeks ago, and then he beat 
my co-host on the fantasy show, Andy McNamara, last week. So no, no, no one's happy. Well, Josh is happy, but no one else is happy. Uh, but yeah, we welcome you back to Sportsnet today across the network. Uh, I am asking you our, our text question again, 590-590. What is your favorite walk-off hit? Home run, bases loaded walk, OT goal, buzzer beater, whatever you want. You can text us at 590-590. We talked about the Joe Carter home run, of course. We talked about the... Kawhi Leonard shot to defeat the 76ers to, that ultimately uh, won them a championship a couple of rounds later in those playoffs. But again, you can text us at 590-590. Uh, I'm very pleased now to be joined by Jim Coventry, NFL analyst for Rotowire and host on Sirius XM NFL Radio. Jim, do you have a favorite uh, buzzer beater, you know, an NFL OT touchdown, something like that to end a game? You know what? I, I have to go to the NBA for this one. Okay. I'm a Chicago guy. Michael Jordan in 98 walking off. I can't. There's no other way to go. Yeah. That's a that's one of the, dare I say, not just in basketball, but the, you know, and I know people argue, did he push off or whatever? You know what? We'll forget it. I, I think that image <laughs> of him raising up and hitting the shot may be one of the most iconic images maybe in all of sports. Yeah, 100%. And like I said, being a Chicago guy, a season ticket holder for the Bulls, every home playoff game Jordan ever played, I was at. It just when I saw that on TV, because that was a road game, right. that was it. Yeah, that's it. You know what? As they, as they go, that is a pretty good one. Uh, but again, I'm joined by Jim Coventry here, NFL analyst for Rotowire and, of course, SiriusXM as well. Okay, so let's turn our focus, uh, Jim, to the NFL. And I want to start by talking to you about the MVP race. And, you know, one guy who has gotten back in it after a down year last year, of course, is Lamar Jackson. And a lot of people talking about Lamar Jackson this year because of, of his uh, prolific uh, throwing the ball, let's say, his proficiency throwing the ball. And he has been very, very good in that respect for a, for a quote-unquote uh, running back who can't throw, let's say, as, they, as a lot of people refer to him. What, <laughs> what have you made of the Ravens play, but of course of Lamar Jackson so far this year? So the biggest difference I've seen with Lamar Jackson is that his struggles throwing to the outside the numbers, the outside of the field, have been problematic. But this year, they're running route combinations where they'll have a receiver like Mark Andrews, the tight end, going underneath to the edge. And then they'll run Marquise Brown sometimes on a circle toward the outside. And they're defining some better reads for Jackson to put him in a more comfortable place. Now, his footwork is still a little bit off on occasion, but I think these predefined reads have opened up a level to his game that we hadn't seen Numbers-wise, he had it in that MVP season, but performance-wise, this is the better version we're seeing. Yeah, Lamar Jackson has been has been absolutely phenomenal to watch. Okay, I want to I want to throw a, a scenario by you. Okay, Jim. So Case Keenum, yeah. uh, we're we're looking elsewhere in the AFC North right now. Case Keenum coming in to replace a quarterback that has disappointed a little bit, who is also injured. Certainly, a talented defense, decent offensive weapons. He's coached by Kevin Stavansky. Am I talking about this year's Browns or the Vikings from a few years ago? Oh, my gosh. Talk, isn't that totally the truth? I mean, blast from the past. The only difference I see, which is problematic, I was expecting to see a lot stronger arm out of Case Keenum. It looks like his arm very significantly regressed. He had Odell Beckham easily for a touchdown, a play that was almost intercepted, but he had an easy touchdown, and he was literally five to seven yards short on that pass. So that is frustrating to see that because if he had his arm, I thought they could do things in that offense that Baker wasn't able to do because typically Keenum has a gunslinger mentality. But if you don't have the gun of an arm to do that anymore, that's going to be a problem. 
You know, I'm curious. We're talking about Baker Mayfield here a little bit. Of course, he's injured. He's had the, I think it was like the to- torn shoulder labrum in his non-throwing shoulder. Then he had a broken bone in that same shoulder. It was, you know, he's it had a bit of a weird year and the injuries happened relatively early on this season. And I just, you know, a lot of things going on with the Browns right now. Injuries all up and down the, the lineup. So I, I understand. But at the same time, like even when Baker Mayfield is healthy, Jim, do you think that Baker Mayfield is the quote unquote answer at quarterback the Browns have been looking for? He's not the long-term answer, but in the short term, they'll run a lot of two and three tight end sets to dictate lower number of players in the secondary. And by him throwing against base secondaries, throwing deep on early downs, those things when he's been managed, he can function within that system. The injuries are going to be problematic, but we saw last year things really connected between the play calling and the symmetry with Mayfield. They, They managed him perfectly. If it's done that way, they're fine. But if Mayfield's hurt and he can't make those throws, that becomes problematic. But he is the guy if healthy. Yeah, I'll be curious to see uh, if he does come back, relatively speaking, soon. I'll be curious to see what what the player of Baker Mayfield looks like as we chat with uh, Jim Coventry, NFL analyst for Rotowire and Sirius XM. You know, I want to ask you about another uh, young gunslinger, Mac Jones. And uh, I don't think it's too crazy to say that he might be the or at least one of the bright spots for the Patriots this season. But I wonder, Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels are coaching very conservatively. And I wonder, do you think it's because they don't have faith in Mac or maybe they're trying to protect Mac from getting hit? I mean, there was that play just I think it was last week where he got just walloped by one of the Dallas Cowboys defensive linemen. I think it was Randy Gregory and he just got crushed. I I wonder if the if the Patriots are are maybe intentionally being more conservative conservative than they otherwise would be because they don't want to jeopardize anything for Mac Jones. You know, the question is interesting because I am very concerned with the way Belichick and McDaniels are handling the offense. In reality, they have a perfect roster designed for 12 personnel, which is two tight ends on the field, but yet they're not playing. They're playing more 11, which is three receivers and one tight end. Therefore, what they're doing is they're lessening the blocking and protection that their quarterback, Mac Jones, would have. And they're also putting an extra defender in the secondary. So they are putting him in the least optimal spot because Nelson Aguilar, I get it, they paid him, but he is not their best option. By putting both John Lee Smith and Hunter Henry on the field, it would be the best of both worlds for Mac Jones. And until Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels fix that, they are going to be putting their quarterback in a lot of bad situations that they don't need to have him in. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned Nelson Aguilar, too. I mean, there was that play in overtime where he dropped the pass and he had the cornerback or the defensive back beat. And all I could think of was after he dropped the pass, and drops are things that Aguilar had struggled with in Philly and to a lesser degree in mm-hmm. Oakland, or pardon me, in Las Vegas. Still not used to saying Oakland and Las Vegas. But uh, but either way, yeah, with, with the Raiders. And he dropped that pass, and all I could think of was after was with his speed, he may not have scored a touchdown, but he could have been close, and that would have cha- vastly changed the outcome of that Dallas uh, New England game from from a couple from last week, I guess. But uh, you know, with Mac Jones, before we move on here, Jim, uh, with Mac Jones, I know it was said a lot coming out of the draft that he was the most NFL ready prospect. But are you are you surprised even still at how much that was the case? I, you know, I thought San Francisco was going to draft him in my pre draft quarterback rankings for this season, I had Jones at number one thinking he'd go to Shanahan. But when he went to Bill Belichick, I again assumed they would run two tight end sets and give him very defined passes against only four-man secondaries. So he's done well despite 
what could have been done to help him. So I did think he could make the throws, and I thought he was in an optimal environment. Now, the offensive line injuries, I want to address that as well. They have hurt him, and I didn't mention that earlier. They have been missing. They were missing four players in their line at one point in time. But, uh, no, Mac Jones, this is not surprising. He's an accurate thrower, and he has a coaching staff that at least will define those reads for him. Yeah, and he can move. He like he's not exactly Trey Lance or Justin Fields with his legs out there, but he he can move the pocket when needed. So it is. Uh, it's been fascinating to watch the Patriots' offense evolve, and I'm I'm sure it'll evolve again before the end of the season. Um, as we chat with Jim Coventry from RotoWire and SiriusXM, um, as we let's stay in the AFC East real quick, Jim. Are the Bills the scariest team, or at least one of the top teams in the AFC right now? They definitely are, and defensively. They've been able to add some pass rush elements. Last year, they were good at dropping the defenses, the defense into like six and five defensive backs to hold down other teams from taking them deep. But now they've added pass rushers. They have some rotations. Now, two players were inactive for them last week. But when they're at full health, I think the defense gives them the ability to do more things. And we know their offense is already off the charts. But, yeah, so any improvement like we're already seeing by the defense, and this team becomes very tough to stop as we get to the postseason down the road. Yeah, Bills losing to the Titans on Monday Night Football. But still, 4-2 and two on the year and are just a game back of the Ravens for the top spot in the American football conference um you know i know there have been a lot of rumors swirling around the dolphins and tua and and certainly deshaun watson and the trade deadline is coming up here do you think the the watson deal actually happens this year i have my doubts jim you know when john mcclain reports that it's going to happen he is like one of the more reliable reporters he's been with the the team since the beginning of that organization and usually his reports are on point. So what I can say based on this report is I believe the discussions are heating up. I believe they must be close. Now, I don't know what that final decision is, but, you know, Watson is cleared by the league to play. He's deactivated by his team each week. They have not said he can't play. I do think Miami is making this move because I think they realize two as a fine quarterback, but they are thinking long-term. He's not a franchise quarterback likely in their eyes. And so, they want the franchise quarterback dealing with the uncertainty that he has Watson does going on, you know, off the field. Certainly that's there, but they're probably willing to take that chance. Yeah. You're probably, you're probably right. I just, I do wonder when it comes to Watson, let's just say for the sake of our conversation, Jim, that Watson does get traded to Miami and he becomes the new starting quarterback. I, I do wonder, cause you mentioned he had been cleared to play by the NFL. I do wonder if at that point, maybe the NFL steps in and puts him on the exempt list, at least until all of the litigation ends. And again, that might not be for a long time. Um, and we, again, I think there's a, there's some, there are some people who think that Watson may, may not ever play a snap of football ever again, which I feel like seems unlikely given the way the NFL tends to go about things, unfortunately. But at the same time, I, just, I wonder if the NFL is waiting for him to actually go out and decide he wants to play before putting him on the exempt list, for example. Yeah, so I've wondered the same thing as well. It would be a little irresponsible of the league to put that onus on the Texans currently to deactivate him. They should have made that move ahead of time, but it would be a really reactionary move. But I do agree it's one that they may be able to do. Now, I don't know if there are any parameters the league has to follow because it's, as my understanding, 
formal charges weren't filed, but the league has a lot of latitude. So it's a really cloudy situation. Um, but you, you certainly could be correct that if he does get dealt, the league could step in. And I don't understand how a franchise seeks to trade for a player with these allegations going on with the people in your community you're bringing him into that, you know, he's not guilty. We're innocent until presumed guilty, but it's a real tough move to sell to your fans that this is who we're bringing in right now until he's cleared. Yeah, that that I 100% agree with. It's, you can't really, I, I don't can't imagine what it would look like for marketing, for example, for the Miami Dolphins to put them on like a season tickets pass to sell to fans to to get them to fill seats when when all these le- legal allegations are still ongoing. It just that that is something the NFL and I think a lot of sports leagues. It's not just limited to football, but a lot of sports leagues have struggled with this this area. And I think it's it's it just go, goes to show that we still have a lot long way to go when it comes to how we consume sports. I think going forward, but um, I I, I was. Just curious on your thoughts on the on the Watson legal saga because it has been in the news very very a lot recently and I'm sure will continue to be as we get closer to the NFL trade deadline. All right, I do want to ask you, um, Jim. Before I let you go, we were talking about Tua and we've talked about Mac Jones. I want to ask you about one another former Alabama quarterback, Jalen Hurts. Is Jalen Hurts? I mean, we said you know is Mac Jones the answer? Is Baker Mayfield the answer? Is Tua the answer? Well, is Jalen Hurts the answer? It feels like he could very well. I mean, I know you're a fantasy analyst as well. It feels like Jalen Hurts could end up being like the best fantasy football quarterback maybe ever, and then he could be out in Philly by the end of the la- by the end of the off season. It absolutely could happen. I have seen improvements in him as a passer. Last year, I felt like. The ball placement was very erratic. I feel it's better this year. Now, they haven't done him a lot of favors. There have been injuries on the offensive line. Lane Johnson missed time due to personal matters. And so I think that also factored in that he's not getting the protection he needs. But I do see improvement. And I think when we're looking at a young quarterback, we have to understand for many of them, there's a massive growth curve that may or may not take place. But I think as of this point, he is making enough progression to make me believe he could move forward and become a better quarterback. As to what the ceiling is, I don't know, but I do think he can be a starter in this league for some time. Absolutely. I, I'm very curious, very fascinated to see the fallout for Jalen Hurts. Uh, whether or not he sticks around in Philly is another conversation, but he has been fun to watch this season. Maybe if you're not an Eagles fan, it's a little more easy to swallow, but at the same time, um, it is it is fun to watch from a, from a number of different perspectives. But I'm chatting with Jim Coventry, NFL analyst for Roto-Wire and SiriusXM. Jim, appreciate you hopping on with me. Enjoy the rest of this week's games, and uh, best of luck to your fantasy squads this week. Good luck, Colin. Thank you for having me. There he goes, Jim Coventry, NFL analyst for Rotowire and SiriusXM. Uh, you can hear Jim on Saturdays and Sundays on SiriusXM Radio, NFL Radio, I should say. And of course, uh, his good work is found on Rotowire.com as well. Yeah, week seven in the NFL is here. Uh, the Broncos lost to the Cleveland Browns last time out. They lost, I, I want to say the final score was 17 to 14. It was a relatively low scoring game. If you're a fantasy owner, I hope you started the Ernest Johnson because he was absolutely phenomenal. Just electric. I know a lot of people said maybe Demetric Felton might be a sneaky little play. No. Dearness Johnson was the guy with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt out. And don't forget, Kareem Hunt is on the injured reserve. Um, the injured, injured reserve to return. So he will be back probably in three to four weeks. But uh, Nick Chubb could return as soon as next week. But, you know, even with uh, Chubb on the roster, Johnson has a pretty high floor, I would say, because he basically is filling that Kareem Hunt role. And <laughs> we all saw what Kareem Hunt did. I will say, from a, from a less from a fantasy perspective, and more from an NFL perspective, 
I think watching Dearness Johnson on Thursday Night Football made something very clear to me. And I, and I know this is, not a, this is not a hot take. This is not a new revelation. People have known this for a really, really long time. But we still see teams pay running backs just an ungodly amount of money. We see it happen time and time again. And we have seen it backfire on teams time and time again as well, right? I mean, look at Christian McCaffrey. The jury is still out on whether or not he'll be healthy going forward. It's possible he will be. But, I mean, he's had hamstring issues and Matt Rule saying, oh, it's just a half-grade strain. And then he gets doesn't get put on injured reserve for three weeks. Then he does get put on injured reserve. And he's a very physical player. He, you know, was it only a couple seasons ago he had 1,000 yards rushing and 1,000 yards receiving? He is, he's a phenomenal player. They gave him a huge contract, and he's been injured since then. You look at Todd Gurley. Todd Gurley has gotten huge contracts. He's been injured. Ezekiel Elliott has been better, and he's still a lot missed time with injury. It just, I think you look at what Cleveland does, and they also gave Nick Chubb a, a titanic amount of money, and as did Tennessee with um, with Derrick Henry. But I think there is an argument to be made, and again, not a, not a new take, that the offensive line, when you have a good offensive line, you can get replacement-level running back production from maybe not the the random Jonas Grays of the world, but you can get re- re- replacement running back level production from guys who are just as good, and you don't have to pay them. And I think, and, and again, I, I'm not advocating for not playing paying players because that's that's just the reality of the situation. Players should get as much money as they are entitled to. But it's just I I wouldn't be surprised if going forward into the into the NFL's future as passing becomes more prolific, if we just see less gigantic deals running backs on the near future, right? I mean, I, heck, I think there's a, a case to be made for you draft, you know, you draft uh, QBs on their rookie contracts, and if they're not good, you get rid of them and you move on to the next guy, right? Like, if from a team construction perspective, I wouldn't be surprised to see more out there ideas become more common, right? And I mean, that was a big reason why the Rams decided to get rid of Jared Goff in the end, right? And I will say, this weekend, that's one of the more anticipated games Rams Lions it'll be I guess it's like a revenge game for both teams basically right Rams uh will have Matthew Stafford coming home against Detroit and uh and oh I guess the game is in Los Angeles so uh the Detroit will actually be traveling to Los Angeles so Jared Goff will be the one uh, going uh, going for his revenge in his old stadium but at the same time it will be a fun game to watch Rams Lions uh yeah don't forget to set your fantasy lineups although no uh no London games this coming uh, this coming week, thankfully. It's, if there's one way to kill the Brits' interest in football, it was to give them the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Miami Dolphins on a regular basis. And the week before that, it was, what, the Falcons and Jets? Boy, if you want to kill their interest in football, you put those teams on the field in, at, uh, what was it, Wembley or the place where wherever Tottenham Hotspur plays, it is that's what you, that's what you want to do to kill people's interest overseas. But, uh, you know, I, I've been asking you... Um, for the last hour or so, what is your favorite walk-off hit, home run, bases loaded walk, overtime goal, buzzer beater, what have you? Uh, so far, we have played the Joe Carter home run. We've played one that I worked on, a Steve Pierce walk-off grand slam in 2017. Certainly not on the same level as Joe Carter or anything like that. Uh, we have played the Kawhi Leonard buzzer beater, which, of course, will live on in infamy, probably, as I mentioned, just like the Joe Carter home run as well. One that I was at as well, we don't have the call of this one, but one that I was at as well since we're talking about football was uh, Brady. It was, a, it was a Patriots game against the Saints, and I believe this was in 2013, 2012 or 2013, and it was at Foxborough Stadium, and it was when uh, Rob Ryan was a defensive coordinator for, uh, for the New Orleans Saints with Sean Payton. And Brady threw a touchdown with, I want to say, like two seconds left on the clock to Ken Brell Tompkins. Ken Brell Tompkins, who I believe went on to play for the Argonauts 
uh, amazingly enough. But that was a, that was a pretty remarkable game, mainly because the entire crowd at Foxborough had left. I only, frankly, I'll be being honest. The only reason I stayed at Foxborough was because we spent so much money on these tickets and actually driving down to Foxborough and the Boston area. I said we're not leaving until this game is over. And uh, and because of that, we ended up seeing a pretty remarkable play that Ken Brell Tompkins played. That was pretty cool. But uh, I do want to play another one for you. This is another Blue Jays one, and this is from the 2016 wildcard game. And again, I think just saying 2016 wildcard game, you all know what I'm talking about. But here is yet another amazing walk-off play, this time by the uh, hands, let's say, of Edwin Encarnacion. The Jimenez pitch, fly ball deep left field. Yes, sir, the Blue Jays are going to Texas. Edwin Encarnacion has won it for the Blue Jays 5-2 with a dramatic 11th inning home run into the 200 level here as he's mobbed by his teammates and a sea of blue down on the field. Of course, the uh, that was the game, the infamous non-appearance by Zach Britton and uh, Buck Showalter getting raked over the coals. And of course, we know Buck Showalter and John Gibbons did uh, did not get along, to say the least, uh, over the course of their tenures as managers of the Blue Jays and uh, Orioles, respectively. But uh, yeah, that was that's another moment that'll live on. Again, I know it didn't result in a World Series championship, but still that season, the, the, those 2015-2016 seasons have you know enough said about those seasons we all remember them and it's it was a lot of fun watching those runs but boy i i remember i got off the subway i was working that night and i got off the subway um i was basically hoping that the that the game wouldn't end while i was underground because i had to go home real quick and i remember i got off the subway in downtown toronto i live pretty close to the to the uh, rogers center and the dome was shaking i remember i walked by a um a bar, some I forget what it was. It was a bar in downtown Toronto, and you could see the television, and everyone was losing their minds when it happened. I basically walked by right as it happened, and I was at this point I was a little further away from Union Station. I think I was walking a little closer to the dome, so that you know what you weren't exactly near a subway line, but. When the walk-off happened, you could feel the vibrations through the streets of Toronto. It was like felt like a minor earthquake because everyone was losing their minds, and rightfully so, because that Edwin Encarnacion walk-off against the Orioles is something that will live on in infamy uh, probably for the rest of time for the Toronto Blue Jays, right? Even if they do go on to win the World Series in the next couple of years, that'll be something we always look back on, right? I think even when um, Chris Taylor hit the walk-off in the, in the NL wildcard game, against the Cardinals this past year, just a couple of weeks ago. I, I, it, was, it was one of a few walk-offs in a wildcard game, including Edwin and Cardinals-Jones walk-off, right? So it's kind of cool. Still, even now, rarefied, rarefied air for the Toronto Blue Jays and walk-off. So again, I'm asking you, what's your favorite walk-off hit, home run, OT goal, buzzer beater, game-ending play, and we will get to a few more of those before we make way in about an hour's time. Uh, coming up next on the program, Katie Heindel, writer for Diamond, co-host of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. We'll chat with her about the Raptors' 115-83 to beatdown of the Boston Celtics last night, and of course, we'll talk about Scotty Barnes notching his first career double-double in just his second career NBA game. Just remarkable stuff. Katie Heindel is next. I'm Show Alley, and you're listening to Sportsnet Today across the Sportsnet Radio Network. We are merely the vessel that gets you every single piece of sports information possible. This is Sportsnet Today on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.
Scotty Barnes, the new for the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, Santos, you like that one. <laughs> As we welcome you back to Sportsnet today across the Sportsnet Radio Network show, Ali, with you until 5 p.m. Just one more hour to go, at which point we will make way for 32 thoughts. Don't forget, later tonight, the Toronto Raptors will take on the Dallas Mavericks at home in Scotiabank Arena after their 115-83 beatdown of the Boston Celtics at TD Garden. I believe, again, it was the worst home opener loss for the Celtics in their very storied history, which is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I have no love lost between me and the rest of the and the Celtics, let's say. I always have felt like the, the Celtics treated, uh, or, or I guess the media treated the Celtics championship in 2008 like it was the craziest championship in the history of sport. Like it was the most impressive thing ever when really, I, I really do feel like it was just the kind of precursor to the NBA building super teams that we have basically seen for the last 15 years, right? It's been, I, again, I'm not, I, it's, it's not discounting what they did because it was actually fun at the time to watch you know, KG and, and Ray Allen and Paul Pierce win, especially when the Raptors were not very good. But at the same time, it's like, come on, let's pump the brakes on. It's place in history here, okay, people? Come on. But I will, uh, I, I do want to get back to our text line conversations. Um, again, I'm asking you what our, what your favorite game winners, OT goals, buzzer beaters, your favorite game ending plays, basically, what those are. Uh, and again, you can text us at 590-590. We've played a whole bunch already. We've played the uh, Edwin Encarnacion walk-off against the Orioles back in 2016. Of course, the Kawhi Leonard shot, the only Game 7 buzzer-beating, game, game series-winning shot, for lack of a better word, in NBA history, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then we, of course, played the Joe Carter World Series winning home run, which is the whole reason we're talking about this, because today is the 28th anniversary of Joe Carter's home run. Uh, I see here on the text line, Adam in North York, he says, I'm very old. Leo Lewis, 72-yard touchdown run in 1962 Great Cup with a minute to play. You know, that's not a home, that, that's not a walk-off or a game-ending play, but that is a really cool moment. I will say that. If we're expanding it slightly... That is really cool. I freely admit I am I am not the uh, the world's biggest Argos fan, but I can acknowledge that the Toronto Argonauts have a very storied history. And um, actually, funnily enough, I will be at the game on uh, the 30th, I believe it is. Yeah, next Saturday. I'm actually going to my first Argonauts game in a couple of years, which is kind of fun, basically since I was in university. So that'll be a lot of fun. I think they're taking on the BC Lions. But again, that one's a pretty cool, uh, cool one. Um, I see one here, Luke from Caledon and John from Toronto, both talking about the uh, Nick Borashevsky Game 7 uh, against Detroit. That's a fun one. Thomas in Toronto saying Franco Harris's immaculate reception. Uh, that's also a really fun one as well. There there are a lot of really terrific ones in history. I see someone else. They, they just texted in two letters, but I have a feeling I know what you're talking about. They just texted in OG. And I, I, if I had to guess, that has got to be the OG buzzer beater uh, against the, I guess it was the Celtics in the bubble playoffs just last year. Was it last year? I guess it was the year before now, uh, now that the season has actually started. But that was a pretty tremendous uh, one itself. Kyle Lowry with the inbounds pass, the, the basically perfect inbounds pass to OG Ananobi, the, the basically complete zero reaction from OG in terms of buzzer beaters, right? The, the the lob touch pass off his fingertips was really cool, right? That was also, um, that that I got to say, even though, again, that series did not result in in championship aspirations, you know, with the, with the way the season had gone and the way Pascal Siakam had struggled, I get it. But at the same time, 
that is still one of the uh, better buzzer beaters in in you know in recent memory for the, when it comes to Toronto Raptors. OG's buzzer beater in the playoffs against the Celtics down in Florida. Very pleased now, however, to be joined by Katie Heidel, Heindel, pardon me, writer for Dime and co-host of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. And Katie, I've been asking people um, what their favorite you know walk-off hit, home run, OT goal, buzzer beater is, and we were talking about the. The Kawhi Leonard uh, shot, of course, from the playoffs in, the, in 2019. Someone just texted in about the OG buzzer beater on the inbounds pass from Kyle Lowry. Do any other ones come to mind for you? Well, thank you for having me, show, And I have to say, you completely stole my thunder because that was <laughs> going to be my answer when I figured you were going to ask me this question. But I want to say that for me, that was like all the Lowry rainbow pass. Yeah. Honestly, I remember that pass. That was the bright spot in what turned out to be an especially bleak series. But, like, watching that pass, it felt like the heavens opened up. Time slowed down a little bit. It was phenomenal. Yeah, that was that was one of the best passes probably he's ever made. Just, you know, right over the outstretched fingertips of some of the Celtics. It was it was pretty great. I also remember, even though this wasn't a game-ending play, I believe it was the regulation ending. It was I think it was game one against the Heat from a couple of years ago into the playoffs and Lowry with the half court, he's heave at the buzzer to tie the game. And, and they, then they went on and got, I think got blown out in overtime when they lost that game. But at the same time, I, I, it's funny to think that all of those things with Kyle Lowry are in the past tense. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy. He's going to be happy Ooh. in Miami, but it's just, it's crazy that that's not something we can say, Oh yeah, we have that to look forward to. It's kind of strange. I think. It's uh, strange. It's pretty sad, uh, and it's going to take some getting used to. I'm I'm 100% not there yet. All right. Well, you know what? One way we can uh, at least try and put it in perspective <laughs> or try and move on a little bit certainly is by discussing Scotty Barnes. And, oh, boy, Katie, Scotty Barnes last night, 25 points, 13 rebounds in his second career NBA game. You know, I, my question, I guess, with Barnes is, is that is what we saw last night is that something you can't necessarily teach? Like, is that maybe something that can be refined, perhaps? But the instincts and, for lack of a better word, the feel he has for the game isn't always something that every player has, it feels like. Yeah, I have to say, when I woke up this morning, I saw this graphic, and it was something like um, play, like rookie player, players in their first year uh, in the NBA who have scored that many points in, like, their first or second game, and it was, like, LeBron James. <laughs> In like 2003, and then like Scotty Barnes and a couple like Carl Anthony Towns was on there, and I was like, I'm all one for just like keeping your hopes and expectations fairly measured. But when I saw that, I was like, that's out the window. Um, I think Scotty Barnes is just like as you mentioned, like there's so much raw everything with him. It's raw talent, it's raw energy, which is just like going nonstop. But what I was super pleased with last night um, is that. How adeptly and smartly, even from game one, like the, like their home opener to, to last night, uh, he's using his size and length and like a lot more smarter decision making and when to slow his game down. Because I, I honestly thought watching him uh, at summer league, that might be a problem, not just for him, but kind of across the board with all these like really long, energetic, pretty green new guys is just that. Knowing, knowing when to slow themselves down, when to stop, and when to just kind of let the game come to them. But last night, you know, we saw so much. His decisiveness was so great. Like, he was cutting and driving. He was getting up front at the rim. I think just, like, him showing that patience on the floor uh, and knowing when to, as I said before, speed up and slow his game down, it makes me think that, of course, there's so much raw talent there, but what we're seeing now is it's, it can be melded. 
So no, I think you, there has to be a certain sense of innate skill and ability, which we're seeing. Obviously, Scotty Barnes has in spades. But what I love right now is like the fluidity of it, and it which makes me think long term is like Scotty Barnes, you know, season to season is going to look totally different. And I think just look better, 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 better and better. Chatting with Katie Heindel here, writer for Dime and, of course, co-host of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. And, you know, one of the things that I also love about Scotty, Scotty's game, and certainly two games into his career, we're going we're to be having this conversation, I'm sure, many, many times, Katie. But it just, uh, you know, you look at the way he plays, and he just bullies his way around, right? I mean, he's a big guy, and it just, it just is fascinating to watch him be as quick as he is but also to watch him go up and battle for offensive rebounds with seven-foot centers like Robert Williams, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with right, right up, right up uh, against the Time Lord himself. No, I know. I think that was something in, in the first game where we didn't really see. Like, I could have, I think it could have stood him to be a little bit more bullying, uh, especially up around the glass. But, like, because, you know, you look at that Wizards team, granted, like, so much of that team is just ex-Lakers players, so I think they have a good idea of how to play together, and that's probably why they looked so organized. But when Scotty really gets a sense of his size and his length again and understands how to use those things and not be not be too shy about getting up close where he can, I think he's just going to steam, like cheerfully steamroll <laughs> for anybody that gets in his way. It's true, right? He de- he definitely is. It's fascinating to watch him on television sometimes because he has this the, like the childlike g- grin, and then he'll just like <laughs> snarl at people, braces and all. And it's kind of it's kind of scary, but also kind of fun. But he is he is a lot of fun to watch. You know, we're talking about a little bit about the athleticism and and just the way this team is constructed. I guess to a lesser degree. I guess is that what we can expect going forward against teams that don't have massive players in the front court? I mean, we saw in the preseason the issues that guys like Andre Drummond and certainly Joel Embiid, again, as well, a player who is who we all know very well in Toronto, the the kind of problems they would present for a team like the Toronto Raptors are. But the the, the Celtics, for example, are actually, I, I feel like, relatively speaking, similarly constructed. And the Raptors were just rolling out, it felt like, just waves of almost identically sized hyper-athletic wings at guys like Tatum and Brown and Smart. And they in the end, they couldn't keep up. And I feel like that might be something we see a lot of this year yeah and i think especially as uh nick nurse starts to figure out these lineups which i do think are just going to be fluid for weeks you know maybe even more like he's gonna he's gonna put the size out wherever he can to just like smother and overwhelm especially you know when you've seen like maybe the shooting uh, hasn't been where we wanted it to be in these first couple of games with the positives of this like smothering and aggressive defense you know like pressuring for turnovers i think they forced like 25 in last night's game i think to me that shows that if the raptors aren't entirely organized yet in who, you know who's well, first of all, like who's creating shots and like who are they going to actually look to for that reliably? They can do all these other things to really upset a team, especially a team kind of I expected to be way more cohesive on the floor than the Celtics looked last night is just kind of rush at them and overwhelm them in other ways that you can. Like the Raptors were just shooting a ton more than the Celtics were. And, you know, honestly, after that game against the Wizards, where it was such a low scoring game, they couldn't really buy a basket. I don't mind them just like putting them up and seeing what happens. Like that's what you have to do to figure out a rhythm, especially when you've got so many guys vying for shots uh, and, and vying for the guy to be the guy who makes those shots. Well, and one reason they were at least able to take, I mean, there are a multitude of reasons, but one of them that they were able to take 
so many shots like they did last night was they dominated on the offensive glass. So just how, how did they switch around the script when it comes to the game one against the Wizards to last night against the Celtics? I mean, I think, again, what we talked about earlier, like putting Scotty Barnes in a position where he can completely take control of the game obviously doesn't hurt. Uh, Precious was up there, too. Precious, I think, he had 12 rebounds, 15 points, 12 rebounds. Um, He's looking just like such a complete player to me. I think something that Dragic said that stuck with me was that Dragic said that he'd been put, Precious had been put in a box in Miami in his first season, and I think now we're seeing him kind of bust out of that box pretty effectively. Um, and even like Gary Trent Jr. I think started, you know, like 20 points and just like being up around the glass is a little bit of a helper. Like he doesn't necessarily have the same size and length as, you know, Scotty, Precious, um, Delano, pretty much our whole like octopus lineup of huge guys. But he's shown that he'll he's just adept at being where Nurse asks him and needs him to be and also like checking the floor and reading it and figuring out where he should get and where he should go, which again was something I was a little bit skeptical and worried about um, when we lose Lowry because you just think of that constant organizational force that he had and the foresight of just knowing where everybody needed to be to make it work and to push things forward and not necessarily having that Fred VanVleet is still kind of getting the feel for that completely, I think, which is totally understandable when you've got so many green guys to organize. Um, But I really liked last night. I think it was just the contributions from all the young guys because, you know, OG and an still been a little bit quiet again. I think it's way too soon to get too tied up about that, but seeing just the, yeah, just these guys being so confident and not afraid to like get in a team like Boston's face makes me, so heartened, especially going up against a team like the Mavs tonight. Chatting with Katie Heindel, writer for Dime and co-host of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. You know, you mentioned Gary Trent Jr. a couple times, and you know there was that interview that Masai Ujiri did, and he it kind of hinted that things were going to be different, and then Trent Jr. did end up lining up with the or going out there with the starting lineup eventually. And I just I wonder going forward, I wonder if where do you fall on Trent Jr. being a member of the starting lineup? It kind of almost feels like. He is, and I know he was traded for Norman Powell, basically, but it just kind of feels like Gary Trent Jr. is Norman Powell, even in the way he is utilized with the starting lineup and with the bench players, but maybe just with a little better uh, better play on defense. And that makes sense, right? Like, he was the guy the Raptors figured they were getting in return, like a younger version of Powell to mold. But along with that, you know, he's not going to be able to fluidly be that go-between guy just yet. So I think... What's been pleasantly surprising to me about Gary is that every time I've expected him to have a quiet game, whether that's in these last two or in the preseason, he surprised me. Like coming out for 20 points last night, 7 of 13 from shooting, like some pretty adept steals, I think. Again, I think he's just showing that he doesn't necessarily need to be the guy at all times. He doesn't need to hop the spotlight, but he can be a difference maker when it's asked of him. And who does that remind us of? Norman Powell so I don't think it's a sense of a replacement I think right now it makes a lot of sense for him to fit in the lineup where Powell did because there's already that space for him Uh, and then as you know Nick and their coaching staff get a better sense of what Gary's other capabilities are because again like he is younger so he's going to grow and develop in a much different way because he's also he's come from a system that didn't necessarily value development in the same way that the Raptors do. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think we're going to see him, you know, sh- shuttling 
to 905 in any sense, but I do think just him getting reps in different lineups on the floor is going to be immensely helpful for his game. You know, and we talked a little bit about the, you know, the place of Gary Trent Jr. in this lineup and, you know, his, his spot as a, as a sometimes starting shooting guard, you know, coming off the bench in the first game. I just, with Goran Dragic, I, I wonder, do you think that we might see just things get mixed up a little bit based on who the Raptors are playing on any given night? Like, do you think the days, maybe a better way of saying it, of having one guy as the entrenched starter might be over or, you know, or, or do you think it's a little more fluid? No, I and I think uh, Raptors fans should probably get comfortable with that. And I don't think it should be taken as a as like a kind of weight or value of where you know X player stacks on the roster at any given moment. I think, as I said before, these lineups have to be fluid for a long time, just by virtue of the fact that you've got so many new guys coming in. I think you know it makes me think of the beginning of the 2019-2020 season before everything. <laughs> went sideways, but you know, when the Raptors were cycling through so many wild and weird lineups, granted by then like then it was because of injuries and now it's because of personnel. But I'm all for chaotic lineups. I'm here for supersized lineups. I'm here for something extremely long and rangy. I think that we should get used to some pretty <laughs> not necessarily the most like elegant looking basketball <laughs> from right. the lineups that we're gonna get in this next stretch, but that's the only way that it's going to really become clear of what um, of what this, this like next gen of the team looks like. And I think a good sign is that Dragic doesn't seem to me like a player right now uh, who, despite like maybe some of the early setbacks of him arriving in Toronto, is also that hung up on I need to start because of like my veteran status. And I think you know aside from. I mean, I was going to say aside from Fred Van Vliet, but I think even Fred Van Vliet could see stretches where he's not necessarily starting because Nurse wants to try something out. Um, but again, I think we should enjoy this roller coaster uh, of lineups for a little bit. Yeah, I will. I Once Pascal Siakam comes back, I will very much look forward to the defensive, different defensive lineups, maybe a lineup of, let's say, you know, Gary Trent Jr., pa- Pascal, uh, Fred Van Vliet, Scotty Barnes, and, and whoever else you want to put there at the five, right? Like it depends, and certainly not in any order, but just it'll be it'll be really fascinating to see who the ball handler is in that offense and and how things uh, work going forward. Uh, Katie, before I let you go, I do want to ask you. Mentioned mentioned him just now. Pardon me, uh, Fred Van Vliet. Um, you know, prob- probably the, the shortest guy on this roster, but definitely not uh, definitely not in people's hearts, right? He is a, a beloved member of this team, but I still think, and I, again, the season is young. That's only two games into his tenure as the basically the starting point guard in Lowry's absence but I just I do you think people will have to reckon with at some point the idea that just simply Fred VanVleet and Kyle Lowry while they might be in the same mold they are two very different players and they play very differently as well of course yeah of course we're gonna have to reckon like I, I think like the sooner you come to that realization the better uh, because I also think it's not a fair weight for Fred to carry on his shoulders I mean and he's been honest and he's just said you know like yeah that was my guy that I was up, you know, up kind of under his wings the entire time that I was, that I played here, that I played alongside him. I've learned so much from him, but what you want out of a new leader of a team, which is arguably what Fred Densley is going to be to this team is to take it in another direction and put his own stamp on it. It wouldn't be right. And it wouldn't be natural and it wouldn't be Fred Densley's game. If he just played like Lowry, you know, and, and looked like Lowry, because that's also not how he plays his best. So, 
it's not concerning to me to see that he's had like a quiet few first couple of games. Nurse made the point that he thought they might actually be getting in Van Vliet and Ananobi's way a little bit in terms of how crowded, you know, the paint has been. You mentioned his size. I think there was a pass, a pretty wild pass, but a pass nonetheless from like, maybe it was from Scotty, uh, half court over to Fred and Fred almost missed it. And I think like there has to be some also in-game adjustments of the fact that like a lot of these guys are six, eight to six, 10 and they're passing to each other, like in a, in an airspace that Fred can't touch. (laughs) So they have to adjust that in-game too. You know, I think um, where I think Fred's done really well and has shown his value uh, as a leader and like some of the lead, I think that the direction that he could take the, the team in with that leadership is in transition. You know, he's kept them looking incredibly snappy. And again, if we want to go back to what we were saying earlier about how like long and loose and kind of rangy the team has looked like Fred's there to keep them organized. You know, I think he's what he has taken from Lowry and is putting his own spin on is how to be impactful on the floor, how to organize the floor. You know, he's getting a handle, as I said, on those things. And he does have a lot of new guys and new faces and new ways of play to organize. So I think I'm very, I'm really looking forward to what we see from Fred Van Vliet sort of out of the behemoth, small but behemoth shadow of Kyle Lowry this season. We will, we, we will uh, look to see if any of those in-game adjustments are made tonight against the Dallas Mavericks. Again, you can listen to that game right here on The Fan and the Sportsnet Radio Network beginning at 7 pregame, 7.30 with Eric Smith and Paula Jones. But I'm chatting with Katie Heindel, writer for Dime and co-host of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. Katie, always fun catching up with you. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time for me on a Saturday afternoon. Enjoy the ball game, and I'm sure I'll talk to you again later this season. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me. There she goes. Katie Heindel, writer again for Dime and co-host of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. Katie also does a terrific uh, uh, newsletter. I don't know if anyone is familiar with Substack, but it's like a, it's basically an online newsletter. And she calls it Basketball Feelings. That's a really good one as well. So if you want to get into your feelings, you can follow Katie on Twitter at WT Evs, whatevs on Twitter. Um, but again, uh, I'm asking you what your favorite walk-off hit, home run, bases loaded walk, OT goal buzzer beater is and a lot of really good interaction on the text line someone mentioned the og uh in the uh, cal lowry inbounds pass to og ananobi during the playoff bubble against the boston celtics to basically avoid elimination i believe and i mean they did eventually get eliminated by the celtics um who in turn got eliminated by the miami heat that year but uh, it was, uh, that is a good one that I honestly, I had f- kind of forgotten about. I, I tried to block out the entirety of the bubble. So that, that, but I, again, that's a really good one that I had forgotten about. I want to play this one for you. Uh, this is a, to kind of turn the switch, turn the page back to hockey and uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And of course, I know someone was texting in earlier. I believe it was Trucker Brad and I hope you are staying safe on the roads. I know we talk and, and do a lot of uh, discussions about the Toronto Maple Leafs here on this radio station, as you as you may not be surprised, Brad, because this we are in downtown Toronto after all. But uh, I do want to play this one for you because this involves a guy we were talking about with uh, Justin Cuthbert in the first hour, Matt Sundin. One of the more memorable moments of this uh Hall of Fame member of Legends Row. Here's uh, Matt Sundin's 500th career goal coming against the Calgary Flames. Flames win the draw. Tangay nearly lost it. Tangay did lose it. And Sundin is up there. Two goals on the night.
the crowd's going nuts. That's one of my favorite individual calls, just maybe of any specific hockey goal ever I've ever listened to. I just may, I get shivers listening to it. And again, I am of a certain age. I'm in my 30s. I, I've watched more Matt Sundin than, than most other players before him. I understand, right? We, we all have our biases, but... I got to say, that was a, a pretty cool one. I think, uh, again, you heard, you heard it there. He had the hat trick. The uh, Leafs won that game 5-4. Darcy Tucker and Alex Steen scoring in that game. Remember those guys? Boy, bla bla blast from the past. Certainly we hear from Darcy Tucker more often than Alex Steen, but uh, pretty cool. Mark Giordano scoring two goals in that one. Damon Lanko and Matthew Lombardi getting the other two goals for Calgary. But that was, yeah, they, a hat trick, overtime winning, 500th career goal from Matt Sundin. Just terrific. So again, if you want to send in uh, your favorite game-ending plays, we will read them on the text line. There's one I haven't gone to yet. It is It lives in the hockey world. And I, I the reason I haven't read, if, you, if you've texted in this moment and I haven't read it, it's because I want to save it for the end of the program because it is by far the most texted one on the text line. Okay? It may involve the color gold uh, if, you, if you haven't uh, gotten the connection yet. We will talk about that uh, at the end of the next segment. One more segment to go. Coming up next, Aaron Quinn of the Cover One Buffalo podcast will join me. We'll chat about the surprising Buffalo Bills. Maybe not surprising, but the very impressive Buffalo Bills. They're 4-2. We'll chat with uh, Aaron about the Bills on their bye week and what improvements the Bills could be looking to make as they head into their bye week and look ahead to the trade deadline. But Aaron Quinn is next. I'm Show Ali, and you're listening to Sportsnet Today across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. The Bills make me want to kick your heels up and shout. Welcome back to Sportsnet Today. Across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Show Ali with you for one more segment. One more segment to go on this program. After this, at 5 p.m., we will make way for 32 thoughts for more Leafs and NHL discussions with Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman. Of course, you can grab 32 thoughts wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, but right now, I am very pleased to be joined by Aaron Quinn, co-host of the Cover One Buffalo podcast. And Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I do want to ask you about the Bills, and we'll get to that in a sec, but I've been asking people basically all afternoon what their favorite, you know, walk-off hits, their favorite home run, the bases loaded walk, let's say, an OT goal, a buzzer beater, uh, an overtime touchdown, whatever you want to go with. A game-ending play, essentially, because today, at least in Toronto, uh, it is the uh, 28th anniversary of Joe Carter hitting the uh, World Series winning home run against the Phillies in 1993. So in, in that sense, do you have any favorite uh, buzzer beaters, uh, OT goals, any favorite game-ending plays on your end? Well, it's probably a few putting me on the spot here. I'm going to have to say I, some of your fans might hate this. I'm a, I used to be a big Red Sox fan okay. uh, back before they won World Series, and I got tickets to a game in standing room only end of the year playing for home field uh, advantage in the play, postseason. And uh, Big Poppy hit one, uh, a walk-off against the uh, Blue Jays to solidify home field advantage. And I ended up sneaking up right on the first baseline for it. So maybe not the biggest one I've ever seen, but being there in person in Fenway seeing it was uh, probably the most memorable sports event I've ever been at. Yeah, I think uh, I don't think uh, listeners were, are going to super agree with you. Let's say, Aaron, but but I will yeah, say yeah, yeah. that that is a good one. I think uh, anytime you can have someone like David Ortiz involved, I think that is a, that is a pretty good one. Sure. All right, let's let's talk Absolutely. about the Bills. Um, you know, and, and Aaron, you know, one thing I've seen you I've seen you say this on Twitter, and I want to ask you this now that we're chatting one one on one. Given the way Josh Allen has played this season, 
Do you think we can all now move on from the narrative that he isn't a quote-unquote big game quarterback? Absolutely. I think so. I think there was uh, some rumblings amongst Bills fans of whether or not, you know, last year was a bit of an aberration with him playing without fans for most of the year and that we didn't see as much of the sugar high Josh and that maybe, you know, in some of the big games with fans, we would see him regress back to that, you know, rookie and second year player that we saw uh, with so much frustration. Uh, I think we're past that now, right? He went into Kansas City and didn't have the greatest game he's ever had, but had a pretty good game. Uh, the team played a good game. It, he didn't seem to have the sugar high Josh. And then last week, uh, going back on the road to Tennessee, Josh Allen was far from the reason that game was lost, right? He, he had a really nice game, probably one of his top five games uh, as an NFL player so far. And that was in front of a, a you know, a, there was a lot made of that being a Bills Mafia fan uh, takeover, but it was very loud whenever the Bills had the ball. Tennessee fans were very much into that game. So big primetime game he delivered. Uh, so I think that narrative is definitely far gone. And the idea that he would regress uh, after this COVID season, I think that's also far gone. I think all the stats show that, you know, this is kind of the player he is now. This is where his floor is. Chatting with uh, Aaron Quinn here from the Cover One Buffalo podcast. You know, I, just because you mentioned it, Aaron, I got to ask you, uh, what did you think of the fourth down call on Monday night against the Titans? You know, so I said this on Twitter. If it's me, I wouldn't because I, I don't have the courage that Sean McDermott has. I would have gone into overtime, but I understand the call 100%. And in hindsight, I think it makes a ton of sense. The defense was not stopping the Titans. And as uh, excited I am about this Bills defense this year, and I, I don't think that that was necessarily an indication of what to expect with them going forward, I don't know that you could have trusted your defense uh, with the, the trusting the coin flip uh, in overtime because if the Titans got the ball, they were winning that game. So I think, you know, if the Bills get that first down, I think the percentage chances of getting the first down were better than getting the coin flip. I think the Bills would win that game easily. And I think eight times out of 10, the Bills win that situation and then go on to win the game. So I stand by the call. Uh, I just thinks it didn't go the Bills way this time. So if we look up and down the AFC area, and, and I can't imagine there's any other team you know, maybe other than the Ravens that you'd look at and say, you know, quote unquote, I'm worried. The Chiefs have been struggling. I know Patrick Mahomes is always dangerous, but they've been struggling. Browns have battled injury, have been inconsistent with Baker Mayfield at the helm. Raiders, Broncos, Colts, Titans. And I know we just talked about them, but they've all been inconsistent too, right? So maybe the Chargers, you could say, would be pretty dangerous. But even then, Chargers, Bills, Ravens, in whatever order you want to put it in, Bills being in the top three conversation is pretty cool as we get closer to the halfway point of the season. Yeah, I think, you know, last year was a really fun season for Bills fans because we thought they'd be good, but I don't know if anyone expected them to be one of the, you know, top four to five teams in the league by almost every measurable, you know, as the season went on, it looked like they were one of the Super Bowl favorites. And now, really early in the season, after that hiccup in the, the Pittsburgh game week one, they've jumped right back up to the Super Bowl favorites by almost every measure. They're right there with Tampa. It's Tampa, Buffalo, and whatever, Kansas City or L.A. is kind of right there to Ravens. So they're in that top five conversation it's such a cool time to be a bills fan uh because it all everything that you look at whether you're an analytics guy whether you're a film guy it all sort of agrees that bills really are a top three nfl team by every measurable you judge football by they're they're right up there in almost every measurable statistics uh big fan of dvoa football outsiders they have them ranked as the number one overall team uh they they do a little bit of stuff for the early season adjustments uh, the, with some of the variables, and they're their second. So by every measurable, this is one of the best teams in the NFL. And I think the odds, you know, Vegas is good at what they do. Having the Bills as the second best odds or first best odds wherever you're looking to win the Super Bowl isn't a far-fetched idea. 
Yeah, no, I, and I think that's fair. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm very much looking forward to the playoffs where we can see the Bills take on, you know, one of Justin Herbert and the Chargers or Lamar Jackson and the Ravens or even Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs if they do pull their pull their stuff together. Um, you know, with the trade deadline coming soon, uh, we're going to be talking about the, the needs, uh, the positions of need, let's say, for basically every team in the NFL. When it comes to the Bills, what do you think the positions of need are that Brandon Bean could look to fill? interior offensive line still uh i didn't mind that the shift happened we're moving daryl williams to the inside and getting spencer brown some playing time i think spencer brown's had some nice moments and obviously shown that he's still a rookie especially in this last game uh, but that interior still is not good enough for me mitch morris in my opinion is still one of the better centers in this league i think he has to do a lot of work to make up for the deficiencies around him i think you know there might not be a player on this team that has been disserviced more uh from the lack of talent around him than mitch morris has and so you know john feliciano is a guy that i think is a sort of a journeyman you know, probably below average interior offensive lineman. And I just don't really see upgrades. There's some teams that are, you know, have losing records right now. Uh, the Jaguars are one of those teams with Narwhal uh, and an interior offensive lineman. But to move those contracts and make those trades in season, I know it has happened more in the modern NFL with some of these GMs willing to make moves, but it's still not the level of, you know, NBA or NHL where guys move mid season quite often. So I don't expect Brandon Bean to do anything crazy. I think, you know, again, we just talked about five minutes ago, how this team by almost every measurable account is one of the best teams in the NFL. And I know as fans, we try to chase the perfect roster and we overanalyze our own flaws, but I think Brandon Bean feels pretty good about this 2021 roster. Even, you know, on a bye week we sit here and look at the flaws and see how you could upgrade. And there's definitely upgrades to be had. A quarterback two would be another one. I just don't know that he makes a move right now. Uh, there's not a lot of salary cap flexibility for the Bills, and you'd have to be giving away some something from the future, uh, and you're going to need those future picks here as this roster gets more expensive every every week, seemingly, uh, with extensions coming our way. Chatting uh, with Aaron Quinn from the Cover One Buffalo podcast. You know, I want to ask you as well, uh, you mentioned the by every metric, uh, basically every part of this team has been excelling, and one part that has been a lot of fun to watch on television certainly has been the defensive line and the combination of Jerry Hughes, Mario Ad and Greg Rousseau but I just I wonder if if maybe belief in someone like Mario Addison maybe wavering is not the right word but maybe he might be moving a little bit further down the depth chart as we go forward in the season I know there's still a lot of time left and and so on but I just I wonder where you're at on someone like Mario Mario Addison yeah so even Mario and Jerry are both guys that I've been high on all along and uh, I think you know probably play better than their sack totals indicate. And I know that that can be frustrating for fans when the sacks don't get home. And that's still one thing we all want to see the Bills improve upon, even with their pressures you know, being really good so far this year. We want to see those sack rates increase. And I know everyone's really excited. A.J. Epinesa looked really great in that Dolphins game and has had some nice pressures. You see the statistics about he's got one of the highest get-offs in the league. And obviously we're all thrilled with the results of Greg Rousseau so far because you know he's made a leap to basically being a starting defensive end and we didn't think you know as fans and people that cover the team we didn't think he would really integrate into this defense right away and now he's a major part of it but these guys still have flaws in their game so right now I think the coaches are going to ride with these vets at the similar snap counts they're getting and I do think though as the season goes on you'll see them integrate the younger guys a little bit more and eat into that snap count like you said it's a it's a very long season 
you got a guy like Greg Rousseau who missed football a year ago. He has not, he's not used to a 16 or 17 game now uh, NFL season. He's just coming out of college. So I think they're going to move these guys in slowly. We've, We've seen the bills do this with rookies before, even though Rousseau started more than rookies in the past. I I think the plan for them is to increase that snap count as we get closer to the postseason, And then it will have the ability to keep a guy like Jerry and Mario Addison who are at the, you know, end of their careers, if we're being honest, It'll give them that, you know, extra rest towards the end of the year to still be impactful pass rushers. Because I think if you look at their pressure statistics, they're both playing well, but I can see them wearing out, you know, especially Jerry at the current snap count he's getting. Mario's had a pretty well-balanced snap count and done well with his snaps, but I think you'll see it decrease to Jerry's and get these younger guys involved as the season goes on. Uh, Aaron, before I let you go, I do want to ask you real quick about the running backs and uh, Zach Moss and Devin Singletary, and they've worked some other guys in there, you know, sparingly here and there. But by and large, for a team that runs the ball like uh, Buffalo does, they do it very successfully. And, and certainly that's in, in some part due to Josh Allen's ability in rushing the ball himself, and he is very good at it. But I do, do you think that it's fair to say at this point of the season, and again, this might change going forward, but at least for now, it certainly feels like Zach Moss has become the main running back more instead of it. Cause before it was kind of like Moss and Singletary existed as a one A and one B, but now it kind of feels like that Moss is one and Singletary is a clear number two. It's a question I can't quite put my finger on. Cause I, this is definitely a conversation we've had on Twitter multiple times with different people. And uh, it really, I'm kind of, if I'm not going to lie here, I'm kind of frustrated with how, running back has been handled. Uh, let's look back at this last Tennessee game. I thought the way Devin Singletary was running in that game was fantastic. He was running with purpose. He really, you know, got physical early in that game and sort of set a tone. And then they went away from him and went right back to Moss. And we heard Sean McDermott talk about in the past that, you know, he's going to ride the hot hand at this running back room. And to me, you know, you look at the early runs in that Tennessee game, you know, that's a hot hand. And then we didn't see them go back to Singletary until later. So I'm not really sure what's going on with how they're divvying this up. I think some of it is game plan specific. I think some of it's situational. You know, Zach Moss is a very good uh, pass protector, and that matters when you have Josh Allen and you're still a team that's primarily throwing the ball on neutral situations, not end-of-game situations, not goal-line situations. In neutral situations, this is still a passing team, and so pass protection and pass catching matter. So maybe Zach Moss has the slight edge there, but I'm not really sure. I can't answer who's number one, and I honestly, you know, I, I'm not happy with how it's being divvied up. When, there, when somebody's running as hot as Singletary looked in that Tennessee game, I'd like to see him continue to get the carries. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a kind of a relatively mystifying uh, process, it would seem, and a lot of NFL teams are doing that in terms of hot hands and yeah. they're not sticking with it. It definitely is a, a thing going on across the league, but we'll have to see how Buffalo treats it once they come back from their bye. Again, the the Bills are four and two, and they sit just a game back of the Ravens for the uh, best record in the AFC. But I'm chatting with Aaron Quinn, co-host of the Cover One Buffalo Podcast. Aaron, appreciate you joining me on a Saturday afternoon. Enjoy the bye week, and I'll talk to you again soon, my friend. All right, man. Thanks for having me. I'll talk soon. There he goes. Aaron Quinn, again, from the Cover One Buffalo podcast. I saw someone text in while we were chatting with Aaron. No name on this one, but I'll read it anyways because it kind of made me chuckle. It just simply says, never goes the Bills way. That's all it says. And uh, you know what? I guess that's fair. I guess that's fair. It, it kind of It's kind of like when we talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? Like I, one, of the, one of my big things with the Leafs this season has been – they can do all of the really impressive things. They can also be really bad. It's just, it's, I find it hard 
to get too high or low either way because at the end of the day, you want to see them accomplish something a little more meaningful, right? I suppose it's a little different for the Bills because they also were quite bad in the regular season before the Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean era, I suppose. But uh, when it comes to, you know, actually delivering results, I feel like we still are kind of waiting with, maybe not with bated breath, but with a somewhat, somewhat stale breath, let's say, at this point for the Bills and the Leafs to do anything. But again, I do appreciate Aaron Quinn joining us here uh, on Sportsnet today. We just have a couple of minutes left. And again, I've been asking you guys basically all afternoon what your favorite uh, walk-off hit, your favorite walk-off home run, OT goal, buzzer beater, essentially your favorite game-winning play, game-ending play, if you want to put it that way. And uh, we've, we've played a whole bunch of them for you, right? We played the Joe Carter World Series walk-off in Game 6 of the World Series back in 1993, so 28 years ago to the day. It happened on October 23rd, 1993 against Mitch Williams. The Blue Jays beat the uh, Phillies 8-6 to to win their second World Series in a row. Uh, we played that one for you. We played the Kawhi Leonard shot against the... Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, I almost said Philadelphia Phillies again. Again, not, not a lot of great uh, great moments for Toronto teams against Philadelphia teams, it would seem, when it comes to walk-offs. But uh, Kawhi Leonard getting that one and getting some a measure of revenge for the, uh, you know, in, in a way for the way the Sixers-Raptors series went with Vince and all of those guys, however many years ago that was, right? So we played that one for you as well. We played Matt Sundin's 500th goal, which is also an overtime goal, which was also a hat trick, which was pretty amazing. And uh, we have played... A couple other ones for you as well, including the Steve Pierce, Grand Slam, and some other ones. But one thing that I – and I see a lot of uh, ones on the text line. I see someone texting in Gretzky to Lemieux in the 1987 Canada Cup. Um, any goal made during a penalty kick, Tony in Toronto. I mentioned the Franco Harris immaculate reception, Adam in New York. We mentioned this one already, the Leo Lewis 72-yard touchdown run in the 1962 Grey Cup. But uh, I want to play this one for you. Um, from the Olympics, and I teased this before the break, and of course, this is obviously the biggest one, right? Certainly when it comes to Toronto sports, we can talk about Kawhi Leonard, we can talk about Joe Carter, but when it comes to the country of Canada, everyone, I think by and large, will probably agree, no matter where you fall on your personal team uh, affiliation, allegiances, you're probably going to fall on this one, and everyone has been texting about this one. The Sidney Crosby goal at the Olympics in 2010, this texter saying possibly the best walk-off moment in our country, and I find it hard to disagree. He's on the ice with a Ginlock. A That has, be, that, that has got to be one of the coolest calls. Chris Cuthbert doing it for CBC at the time. Um, that, is, that, is, that is it, right? There's, it's hard to beat that. I'm going to bring into my, my technical director, Josh Santos, into this conversation. Uh, you know, I see someone here on the text line, Santos, saying, I think it's, it's Hayden from Hamilton saying, Sydney, he, he just in quotes says, Sydney Crosby, the golden goal. Canada has a once in a lifetime Olympic goal. I think it just, that just goes to show Santos that I think there are, no matter where you are, People have that memory burned into their into their brains for good reason. Because everyone, and I'm sure you can, everyone remembers where they were when the Golden Goal happened. I was in Vancouver. Really? I was lucky enough that uh, I had a family member living there at the time. Okay. And I was able to uh, fly out. And I, I didn't have any tickets to any events or anything. But like just to be in the city while the Olympics were in town and, and feeling the atmosphere. And it was, it was insane. Like I, I don't know if anything has matched that since except i mean no i don't i don't think maybe maybe the raptors parade right but actually probably the raptors played has rivaled it 
But it, like it was just it was like a, a like a two week long like, thing where like even if Canada wasn't winning medals in other sports, it was a constant party that 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 two weeks. Yeah, and I see I see so many texts. The golden goal from Paul and in Ancaster. I see someone else texting in Sidney Crosby's golden goal from the Vancouver Olympics. Yeah, it just that is the one thing that people remember. I was here. I was a, I was a student at the time at U of T, and uh, I remember. Uh, the we had a, a student pub on the on the campus grounds. There's a couple of student pubs, but there was a student a student pub on the campus grounds called the Cat's Eye, and I was watching the game there. And uh, after after the the goal was scored, it was just pandemonium in the streets, right? Like U of T is pretty centrally is near the ROM, so it's pretty centrally in the downtown core. So I remember I walked down to Young and Dundas, and I was walking up by Bloor and Young, and it was like, people were like, you know, there's a there's a bay. Uh, like the Hudson's Bay Company located at Young and Bloor. And someone had run into, police officers were, were standing right there and they were just kind of, they're just watching and laughing. The the This person ran into the HBC building, came back out with a fire extinguisher and was just spraying the foam in the air. Like at the Bloor, at the Bloor and Young, I guess it's like a four-way uh, crosswalk. This person was just spraying it like a foam party and then cars would go, and they'd respectively move back, let the cars go. And then at the next four-way stop, everyone would just run in and spray the fire extinguisher in the air. That's a, that's a really good one. Okay, so I, I want to ask you, Santos, outside of, let's say, uh, the, the golden goal, because I think that is the top of everyone's list, are there any ones, maybe ones we've played tonight or ones that we have not gotten to yet, either on the text line or on the air? Is there a, is there a particular walk-off, hits, or moment, uh, OT goal, buzzer beater that comes to mind that you always remember? I think, well, I mean, the one that I remember, like, myself, was the Sundin goal. Um, for whatever reason, that one has just stuck with me. Uh, but I think, like, the best one in, in, in Toronto sports still has to be the Carter home run. Right. Uh, that, that is the epitome, uh, epitome of, you know, a kid's dream if you're a baseball fan. You know, it's, it's the World Series. You're hitting a home run to win it. That's, I mean, it's hard to beat that. I mean, the shot comes close. But the shot didn't, you know, it led to a championship, but it didn't win the championship. Not to, you know, downplay no, the I shot. Feel you. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that would probably have to be as far like personally, probably the Sundin goal, just because I was a huge Sundin fan. And he that, says as he wears his Leafs hat. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like, I'm not, you know, I, I know how big the other ones were, and, and the Carter home runs probably the biggest in Toronto sports. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're probably right. I know someone had texted in about the Ed Sprague home run as well um, from, I think that was 1992, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, at the same time, like, that wasn't, uh, that was huge. And the, uh, the pinch hit home run, massive, right? Like, I'm not saying it wasn't. It just, it didn't, it wasn't the game ending for the World Series yeah. play. It was in the World Series, and that mm -hmm. gives it a huge amount of credence as well. And I think I think we should be talking about ones like that more, more often. Don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. I think that the, the texture, um, I'm just going to find your name here, uh, Dom. Dom is right, like, for sure, right? I think that probably is to a lesser degree because I'm a little younger, and that, that happened. Um, like, it happened during my lifetime, but not while I was old enough to remember it and appreciate it like to the same degree I can for like the Kawhi Leonard one, which happened just a couple a couple right. years ago, right? But I do agree with you that because it was to win a championship, like the moment that, that ball left his bat, the championship belonged to the and, Toronto Blue Jays. And the fact that there's only two of those, yeah, in in the entire history of the MLB, um, that just adds to it. it. It's tough to beat. Yeah, Joe Carter was on. I mentioned it off the top of the show, but Joe Carter was on Fan Drive Time with uh, 
with uh, Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt, and they interviewed him. And Carter himself mentioned, you can find that interview online. It was a pretty short interview, like eight to ten minutes. It's a pretty good one. He talked about, you know, how he, he doesn't exactly crack champagne every time someone doesn't end the World Series <laughs> with a walk-off home run. But he does watch home games that could end the World Series because he's hoping for a save and not a walk-off because um, it's true. It's funny that only... Only two World Series have ever ended with a walk-off home run, certainly Joe Carter. And 30, 33 years prior, Bill Mazeroski's uh, for the Pirates in 1960 at Forbes Field to win Game 7 against the New York Yankees 10-9. to So just Mazeroski and Joe Carter have the distinctions of being the, uh, the guys to win World Series with walk-off home runs. But that's my producer, or pardon me, my technical director, Josh Santos. In a couple, in a minute here, we're going to make way for 32 Thoughts uh, with Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman. Uh, but again, I thank you all for listening. I thank you all for uh, giving in your your favorite walk-offs. There's someone else here, Todd from Oakville, Kirk, Kirk Gibson's pinch hit home run for the Dodgers, Jeff from Rockwood, the Tiger Woods chip in at the Masters, also a pretty good one as well. Tiger Woods being the needle that moves it for golf for me. But again, that's it for this edition of Sportsnet Today. Thank you to all our guests, Justin Cuthbert, Jim Coventry, Katie Heindel, Aaron Quinn. Thanks to Santos himself. Thank you to all you guys for listening and texting in your favorite game-ending plays in honor of the 28th anniversary of Joe Carter hitting his World Series home run. 32 Thoughts is next. Wrapped as Mavericks will be on the network as well. Thank you to listening and putting up with me today. Have a great Saturday night. We'll talk to you tomorrow.